Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Joshua chapter 14 is where we're picking up. You can turn your Bibles there. Uh, for context in Joshua, because we've all been in like mentally in Jonah here for a little bit, chapters 1 through 4, step by step, God leads them. And they decide to follow God, and they do it piece by piece. And then they have their first spiritual victory at Jericho. But that's followed by bigger battle after bigger battle, where the kings of the world gather against them, and as they move into God's promised land, God works with the Israelites to take and conquest the land. And here we are at the end of Jonah, we move to another section where the next piece that's happening is the allocation of the land where they're going to move in to where God has promised them. They're getting their rewards. So parallel-wise, if you're looking at Joshua as a, a book that reflects our spiritual journey, this is kind of like we've arrived in heaven and things are being allocated. Right, and they're so they're they're there. They've won the major battles. Yeshua has been victorious, but there's still work to be done all over the place. A lot like Jesus was victorious on the cross, but has given us two thousand years to win some battles all over the world and conquer that territory and and bring the gospel message to the world. So that's the, what's being left. And if you remember last time we talked about Joshua, God came to Joshua and said, Joshua, you're getting old, <laughs> which is wonderful. And it's true, we get old. And at some point, our responsibility shifts from us being the primary actors to discipling and getting new people ready to take over the work of Christ across the earth. And Joshua's in that mode where he's going to hand it off to 12 elders. And they, we don't have judges yet. We don't have kings yet. We're just going to see if the tribes can just do what's been modeled for them. A lot like we're supposed to do what Jesus and the disciples modeled for us. And we have to do that. Jesus literally hands it off to 12 disciples, just like Joshua hands it off to 12 tribal elders. So the reflection or the mirroring is definitely there. Joshua is showing them how to do it. They have to do it. So here we are in Joshua 14. We have allocated the two and a half tribes in the last chapter. And it, it clearly said the Levites don't get an inheritance. So they're out of the picture. So what we have left then is nine and a half tribes that need to get their land. So let's start. Verse 1, these are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and a half tribes. So everybody gets that context and where we're at? So it's almost like, okay, now let's talk about who gets the promised land. And we have people that didn't get the promised land, but knew everything about how to get it. They just didn't choose to get it. Eleazar in verse 1 is highlighted. Well, that's a shift in leadership, isn't it? Who has been the leader throughout the book of Joshua? That's kind of a trick question. Joshua. So at verse 1, after God says, you're getting old, it's time to hand it off. Notice that Eleazar takes the first primary spot. 
Joshua humbly just hands it off. He doesn't need it. He didn't. He served under Moses for a long time. He can become second here. And another way to look at this is that when it comes to God's allocation of inheritance, that's not the political leader's job or the military leader's job. The priest takes prominence when it comes to who gets what inheritance. And the priest then steps in. Eleazar is Aaron's third son. If you remember the story, there were two older brothers that brought in some funky smoke into the temple, and they weren't supposed to do that. They got in trouble. They are no longer. Uh, also note the high priest then um, uh, doesn't seem to be any transition at all. Joshua and the high priest have been working hand in hand the whole time. So they're just, they're partners, they're brothers, they've been doing stuff. Um, so, and I like the idea that Joshua, what we're seeing here at the end of his days, is this habit of elevating other people. Like he doesn't need to be in charge. I like that about Joshua. He's happy to elevate other people and put them into these spots. Um, it says or it references that this is as Moses told them. Uh, so this is in Numbers 27. If you want your cross-reference for that, that's where that happened. Numbers 27, verse 21. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord. Urim and the Thum are the two stones that the priest kept in his little pouch. So when they say drawing by lots, it's kind of like they're doing something random here to see who gets what, but we'll talk about that in a sec. He and all the children of Israel with them, even the congregation, Numbers 27. So the spiritual leader takes prominence. Casting lots. <laughs> we just did this with Jonah. This is not gambling. That's not what they're doing here. They're not trying to see who gets money or who's going to win a game of chance. I'm not putting thing, anything up as a stake to cast lots. This is the giving of gifts. This is my grandma at Christmas time, and she would have been knitting all year, and everybody, all the grandkids would come, and we know we're all going to get mittens or hats, and we're kind of like hoping we get like first dibs so we can get the mittens, because she would use her used yarn from 30 years ago, so there would be the olive green hat and the cool royal blue hat. So you'd kind of hope that out of the 18 grandkids, you drew the first lot, and this is how that happened. So there is a hope and an expectation from drawing lots, but it's not like gambling. It's not like we all threw in three bucks and then you know the, the winner gets the pot or anything like that. So they're going to draw lots. Part of where in the Bible we see the drawing of lots is because this is a way we can make decisions without showing partiality. Whenever a leader makes decisions and has to pick somebody over somebody, people's feelings get hurt because they feel like, well, why'd you pick them? They're my, are they your favorite? And all that sort of thing. And either you've got a body of people that trust that whoever's in charge is praying about it first and the Holy Spirit's working through them to help elevate and pick people. Either that's happening or if you start to get people worrying about favorites getting played, a good leader just says, okay, we're just going to draw straws. Right? We're just going to make this random and then everybody knows there's no partiality and We'll just let God do the picking here. So that's what's happening, and it's there's no room in that place than when the decisions get made. You can't really make accusations. All you can think is, darn, I wasn't lucky. Like, I should have hoped that I got that role or something. So the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is the Lord's, Proverbs 13, 30, 16, 33. Proverbs 16, 33. Lord, help me speak correctly. The lot causes contentions to cease, and parts the ways between the mighty, Proverbs 18, 18. There is a place where you just do a random selection, and that's actually good, and it helps things to work well. So all things being equal, 
Let's just draw straws and let God do the picking. And I pointed out with the Jonah study, the disciples did this when they had to fill that 12th disciple spot and they had two really good guys that were there. Instead of them doing the picking, they just drew straws or cast lots and they let God kind of pick that person. So they come into the land of promise. Everything um, from here in the Bible, everything from here on, except for the book of Jonah, happens in this new holy promised land that they've picked. So this becomes the scene of the Bible all the way through the book of Acts before they kind of spread out and start sharing the gospel with the world. So this becomes kind of the set for the rest of the Bible. Verse 3. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half-tribe on the other side of the Jordan, but to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. That's a summary of the last chapter. For the children of Israel... For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. So there's actually 13 tribes. But because the Levites don't get land, it's now going to be 12 tribes again. So only nine and a half get the promised land. There's a reminder here of what we just studied last week. I'm not going to go all into it again. Uh, Jacob uh, gives a portion to Joseph in Genesis 49. So this goes all the way back to Genesis 49, and Jacob basically turns and says, you will get a double portion. And we'll kind of get into those verses a little bit. So at the end of the day, there's, there's 12. And they gave no part to the Levites in the land except for the cities to dwell in with their common lands for their livestock and their property. It's very important to have a place to put the cows. As the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. The priesthood's going to do that, and here we go. Um, but before we get into all that, we get introduced to a kind of a character that's been mentioned before, but we've never gotten to see the character of this person. His name is not Casey, it's Caleb. <laughs> all right? And I really was digging on Caleb all week this week. This guy is amazing. And frankly, when I think of his personality, he kind of reminds me of Casey. Like he's got a motor that doesn't stop right? He's got that, that love of the Lord. He's fearless in what he's doing. He's all in for what he's doing. And I just love this guy. He's, he's a wonderful, you can see why he and Joshua were buddies. Caleb's from the tribe of Judah. Uh, he's a model of what everybody should look like when they get to heaven. We should all have the confidence of Caleb and have that spirit that Caleb has saying, I will fight the battles you want me to fight, Lord. Put me in there. Give me the toughest situations. I remember as a teacher, like, I don't know why, but God always gave me a heart for the special needs hyper boys that nobody else wanted in their room because I was one when I was a kid. So I loved those kids. And I'd always go to the principal and I'd say, whoever you got coming up next year, give me your worst. Like, I want those kids in my room so they can have somebody who really loves them. And I'll deal with them. I got a thick skin. And I think that's kind of who Caleb is here. He's just got that attitude. Give me the toughest fights we have, and I'll take them so nobody else in Israel has to take them. I love this guy. So really, the other kind of image of Caleb, if you want to find a comparison to this guy, is when Jesus left, he picked somebody who said, you're going to be the rock of my church. And he was the same personality type, that jump-in-the-water guy. Peter is who I'm talking about, right? That jump-in-the-water guy, the guy that's willing to make mistakes, he's just going to take it on and see what happens. And that the Caleb's got that spirit. So then the, the ch children of Judah, verse 6, came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, 
the Kenesite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me at Kanish Barnina. Caleb knows Joshua, they're friends. There's a relational aspect that starts the story of Caleb, right? He's first a brother to Joshua, a kind of a fellow warrior. And if you remember the story back in Numbers 13, these were the two guys that were the spies for the land. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that came back and said, let's do it. Doesn't matter how big they are. Doesn't matter what their weapons look like. Doesn't matter if they're big, giant, tall people. We will take the land because God said we'll take the land. Joshua becomes the leader of Israel and Caleb gets this story. But that's the character of these people. I love this. So Judah's now considered, notice, we shouldn't miss this, the first tribe up in verse 6 is Judah. How did the fourth child become the first position? And we should know these things as we go back through. Uh, Reuben, first of all, as eldest brother, doesn't save Joseph and throws him in a pit and has him sold into slavery. That was Reuben's responsibility to not let a little brother be sold into slavery. So he loses favor from that situation. He also has sexual sin with his stepmom's maid in Genesis 35. Another bad thing, Reuben. Bad deal. He loses that first inheritor position when he does that. So then you got the second child and the third child, Simeon and Levi. Both of them lose their first child position in Genesis 34 because somebody gets raped and they think the, the follow-up for that is to murder an entire town. So they're guilty of murder. They have this massive sin on their hand. They're both told, Simeon and Levi, you'll get no inheritance. You'll get no land. Uh, so they, they, then Caleb steps up out of the tribe of Judah. So the whole tribe's coming forward and Caleb steps up in front of that. It doesn't say that Caleb's the tribal elder of the tribe. It just says his lineage here. He's the son of Jephunneh, the Kenesite. Um, and, and all of these are reflections of, I, I think, what it looks like to arrive in the promised land. First of all, you come with your people. I think that's a fascinating idea. What if in heaven, when we go to judgment, we go together? You know, or if you're in a morning church too, like you're going with those, well, that's going to be really tough for you because you'd be like, which group do I hang with? So you'll have to really make a very honest decision of which group you want to hang with. <laughs> but they all go together. They come forward together and they stand before God together. There's a lot of places in the Bible where whole families get saved and whole families get judged. And Jesus calls us the family of God, the family of Christ. In fact, we are inheritors. Oh, my goodness. For those of you listening to the podcast, it just started to rain outside, and a grandma was walking her little child, and they just got dumped on, cats and dogs. And the kid, I think, is enjoying it. Uh, so Caleb steps up. They're all reflections of those who arrive in the promised land. This is the first position the first position, being the firstborn, Judah now taking that slot, this is the best spot because you get dibs if there's any kind of picking going on. If it's drawn by lots, you get all of the land allocations as a possibility when you draw lots. So as we start picking lots, the last tribes to go will get the least possible options. So I think that's interesting. Um, so they get the first and best position. Um, here's what Caleb says. We'll go back to Caleb's story here. Verse 7. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. I believed what I said. Nevertheless, my brethren, who my brethren, it, it's not brothers, it's my, my brethren, these people that are kind of my friends, 
who went up to me with the heart of the people, who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever because you have, and second time this is said, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. So now he's an old codger, right? And now the Lord has kept me alive. And he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. First, Caleb steps up, verse 9. Deuteronomy swore, or, or, Moses swore this back in Deuteronomy 1, verse 35. Uh, this is where we can time out how long it took them to conquer the promised land, about seven years. Because if he's 85 years old right now, and he was 40 when they started, 40 plus 38 years in the wilderness means there's seven years left that they have crossed the Jordan River and fought these battles. Which means most of those seven years, they weren't actually in combat. They were staying at Gilgal, waiting for God to do his work. For humans, that's forever. You ever deal with a kid and you're like, you need to wait for 30 minutes in the corner. And it's like, no, it's forever for a kid. But don't believe we're not children of God, right? When God says, I need you to wait four years for that, we're like, four years, that's forever. And I, we can have very, very old people that think that's a long time. From God's perspective, that's not a long time. They sat in Gilgal, they waited for God to move. And God said, go, and they ran when it happened. So they were anxiously waiting God's command. I just want to live like that. So Numbers 13, 7, he says he's one of the spies of Judah. Uh, from Numbers 13, verse 30, it says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses. The whole people were yelling and screaming about going the wrong way, and Caleb shuts them up. What kind of personality does that? Okay, shut up everybody. Caleb quiets the people before Moses and says, let's go up at once and take this possession because we're well able to overcome it. That's Caleb. That's Peter jumping in the water and saying, I'll do it, Lord. That's Peter dumping his fishing boat and following the Lord when he's called. It's the same personality. I'm there. So they wanted to stone Caleb when that happens. He's willing to stand up against the entire nation of Israel to speak the voice of what's in his heart, which is God's will for Israel. This guy's got guts. Not only that, just last chapter or two chapters ago, God said, Joshua, you're getting old and you're feeling on in years. He's the same age as Joshua. So where God's like, you're getting old, Caleb's like, I'm not old. I'm ready to go fight some Amicalites. So this is that guy. We used to know a guy named Bump. Bump was a shingler. And he's like 80 years old, but he's got like, his legs are like this because he's been on roofs his whole life. He's just built like a rock. And he's up there slinging shingles, and we can't even keep up with him when we're in our 20s and 30s. Right? That was Bump. That's what Caleb's like. He's just one of those rocks of a human being, right? Now look, now Lord, look on these threats that they have and grant your servants all the boldness that they can speak your words. Acts 4.29. One of the things we should pray for is to be like Caleb. Give me that kind of boldness to stand up and tell everybody in the room they're wrong and to the point where they're ready to stone me. Like I want to be that person. Because when you hear the whole mob going one direction and you stop and say, uh-uh, the Lord God Almighty, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that God says no. Or the other way, that God says yes. We want to be that person in the room. And who cares what anybody else thinks? Be like Caleb. So I'm trying to just 
Think of the boldness of this guy. So God sees those that stand against their own culture and he loves these people. And Caleb gets a special inheritance. He gets first dibs in this situation. Caleb's the only person whose land is not drawn by lots. So he's going to get, before we even start doing the tribes and doing all the lots, Caleb gets the choice position because he was, he and Joshua were the only people that stood their ground. When we get to heaven, it is said that we will have crowns for the degree to which we're bold for the sake of the Lord. And Jesus says, those who are ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of them. That's kind of convicting, right? I never want to be ashamed of the Lord my God. I don't care who's in the room. God reigns. And I want to go to heaven and I want to have that attitude. I love the phrase here, I wholly followed the Lord my God. Verse 8, verse 9. It's two times. The idea of holy filled is to be full, not in an arrogant way, but in a very truthful way. So there's nothing negative connotation about the word holy. It is to be whole or to be complete. He was faithful and he was waiting from 40 to 85 years old. He's waiting for this moment. And now I am here today. Look at how God let me survive because God wanted me to see what I get for being his person. And at this point, the whole nation's on board with God's plan. But Caleb was on board first, right alongside Joshua. I just, I know I'm repeating myself. I love Caleb. What are we filled with and what makes us whole? If the qualifying condition of Caleb is that he was wholly filled or wholly followed the Lord God, and that's an idea of filling up, what fills us up? What gives us juice in the morning to get going? And it's not bacon right? There are many things in the Bible that fill people up. They're all over the place. Do a word search on the word filled. I'll give you some samples. In Luke 22, 28, you can be filled with wrath. In John 16, 7, you can be filled with sorrow. Or Acts 19, 29, you can be filled with confusion. In <laughs> Job 3:15, you can be filled with silver and gold. That can be what fills you. In Psalm 123, you can be filled with contempt, scorn, pride. Proverbs, 13, Proverbs 14, you can be filled with your own ways, right? And we just, we're talking a lot about that this weekend. So, but let me give you the flip side. You can be filled with other things too, because those are things that fill people. You can be filled, Psalm 126, you can be filled with laughter. Psalm 71, you can be filled with praise. Acts 13:42, you can be filled with joy or you can be filled with the Holy Ghost. And those can be the things that fill you. Romans 15, 14, you can be filled with knowledge. You can be wholly following the Lord with these things. And of course, Exodus 28, 3, you can be filled with wisdom. These are gifts of the Spirit when you're filled with these things. These are very different personalities in the church. We become professionals at whatever we allow to fill us up. And we become very good at it. If we seek laughter, we become good at laughter and laughter fills us up. It becomes what gets us through our day, and we enjoy it. And what a great thing when you have a room full of people that are filled with the things of the Spirit instead of filled with the things of the world. So our goal isn't to be perfect, but it is to be wholly following the Lord, just like Caleb. I like that. Um, Ephesians in the New Testament really makes it clear that what we're supposed to be filled with is the Holy Spirit. So don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, 
be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we don't cease to pray for you. And we ask that you can be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We should be filled up with the Word of God. And we should kind of look forward to it every week. I want to learn a little more this week. Colossians 1.9. The Lord's kept me alive, Caleb says. Uh, I like the idea that that's part of what God does for us. Have you met people that are walking around physically alive but spiritually dead? Have you ever had days like that? You're there and you're breathing, but there's no life in you. Sometimes we think, and I think this is young people especially, as we grow into adults, we think that joy comes from ourselves and we just put it on. We just say, I'm going to be cheery today. And we listen to little self-help tapes, right? You are a carpenter. And we believe that. And if we just believe it hard enough, we'll become it. But that's not true. Um, The Lord keeps Caleb alive. He's the one that gives us life. Wake up in the morning and say, Lord, fill me with life so that I might be overflowing for other people. So the Lord has kept him alive. It says, now here I am. God allows Caleb to survive so he can participate in the work of God. That's the game. God can do everything on his own, but what a blessing that he allows us to participate in what he's doing. So we can pray things like that. Lord, help me to see what you're doing today and let me be a part of it. Can I just watch from the back corner? And if God finally allows you to be in that conversation, you're like, thank you, Lord. I've been watching from the corner for a long time. I'm so glad to be in this situation. Now here I am. Blessed be 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten again in us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible. When Jews in the New Testament use the word inheritance, they're referring to this part of Joshua. This is the inheritance chapter of the Old Testament. But what's our inheritance? Our inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled and it does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. That's what Caleb says. He's kept me alive. You're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to know my inheritance. This is how we arrive at heaven. We don't arrive at heaven terrified because we know the promises of God. He is sure and just to forgive. But we go to heaven and say, what's my inheritance, God? I'm ready to see it. I've got plans for mine and I'm ready. Like if heaven is some sort of new version of the planet Earth and animals are no longer against us like they were in Genesis in the fall, I want the bear farm. And I want to raise bears and I want to ride bears. So... When we get up in line, do we have things that we boldly ask for? Like, God, can I have bears? And God will be like, if that's all you want, Dickers, yeah, you can have the bears. So you can come visit. You're laughing at me now, but when you get to heaven, don't tell me you're not going to come visit the bear farm. And I'll come riding up on my polar, and I'll be like, hello, do you want the black bear or do you want the grizzly? I'll have names for them. Stephanie's decided she wants her neighbors to be from Third Day, the band. It makes me a little jealous, I'll be admitted. But for the faithful, we're not going to get to heaven in shame and doubt. We're going to be like Caleb. For those that wholly follow the Lord, we did it before the Lord returned, we're going to get to heaven and have a lot of joy. 
It's going to be rejoicing and praise, and we'll be wholly following the Lord then, too, just like we are now. I love that. Amen to that. Verse 11, Caleb. As yet, I'm as strong this day as the day Moses sent me. You, I've, I've met old codgers like this, and they're like, I'm all strong, and you're like, I don't know about that, I don't, you know, but they think it. Just as my strength was then, so is my strength for war. And I'm going to go out, and for, both for going out and coming in. I'm strong at home. I'm strong in the field. Like, this is Caleb. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and the cities that were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord did. Caleb has seen what God did at Jericho and he wants to see more of God's behavior. I just, what an awesome guy, right? Give me the mountain. Give me that toughest spot in Israel that we were scared of then, and I'm going to win that mountain. I'm going to take it. That's Caleb. That's that guy. So feisty old man, 85 years old, and he's as strong today as he was then. You know, at some level, though, you don't really want to get into it with these guys either because maybe they are that strong, you know, wiry suckers. So he's going to go fight them. He's living for the kingdom. He's picked his spot, and he's claimed it. I want that spot. Because if you go and the Lord's like, what do you want when you get to heaven? And you're like, I don't know, whatever you want to give me, Lord. No, pick the bears. Like, ask for something you want and get ready. Like, dream and meditate about heaven and what you want when you get there. Because all the Lord can do is say, no, I got something better for you. Right? You don't even know what you're asking for. You really want to be with the bears when your wife's all hanging out with third day? You really want that? Give me the giants is what he's asking for. Man, amen. Praise the Lord for these kinds of believers. Give me the toughest battle you got. Give me freaking Cambodia, right, Britta? Like, give it to me. And I want to see what the Lord's going to do. I'm going to step out and go there because I want to see people get saved. I want to see people repent. We're going to get to baptize Lisa. Like, how fun is that going to be, right? I'm thrilled about this idea. Like, we want to see people follow the Lord and make vows to do it. And then watch what God's going to happen. Caleb asks for the mountain in this chapter. I shall be able to drive them, not on his own strength, but may it be that the Lord will be with me, and there I'll be able to drive them out as the Lord said. I want to be in partnership with God. God invites us into partnership, and some of us as believers, we read enough of this word of God, and we're like, okay, Lord, I'm ready. I want to be in partnership with you. Let's do it, and let's see what happens. Amy, you're on board with that, right? She wants to see revival. She comes in every week. Sean, I want to see revival. Faster. Let's go. Let's do this. And I'm just like, okay, the Lord will wait. And she's a Caleb. And I'm like a Joshua going, just, you got to wait a few years till we could do it, you know. Man, what does it take for us to want God and God's inheritance like Caleb does? How can we look at a character like this and say, make me a little more like Caleb, Lord, and pray that in the morning when we wake up? Give me the hardest challenge you got. Not give me the easiest lane path. That's what Reuben and Gad did. And they are losing out over there. You know, Caleb's going to get to see more and more miracles of God that aren't even recorded in the Bible. It's like, and happily ever after, Caleb goes off to fight the battles of God. And this is going to be the end we see of Caleb. He's just living in eternity now. But Reuben and Gad, they're in compromise. They lose to idols. They get conquered by the Assyrians. What a loser path they have in front of them. But Caleb, he's going to win. 
I think God delights in those kinds of people that take on big things. This is the opposite of the Jonah study, right? What a sad character he was. Caleb's the opposite way. Listen to this from Matthew 14. Pay attention to God's thoughts as he's dealing with these folks. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear, seeing Jesus walking on the water. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer! It's me! Don't be afraid! And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I won't finish the story. The decision he made to get out of that boat, think of what Peter's got in him. And God looks at that and says, "Ah, I got another Caleb. He's willing to do anything despite what his eyes see. He's willing to follow the calling of God into the unknown. Lord, make us more like Caleb. God not only hears the ridiculous request, because people don't walk on water. God can do that, but people don't. He hears the ridiculous request. God honors the ridiculous request. Caleb comes up saying, I want my inheritance. I'm here first. My tribe has been escalated to first position, and I'm first to ask. The rest of the tribe lets Caleb do this. They respect the old codger. Let the old man have his showing. He steps up. There's no sign of any conflict with that happening. And Joshua, just like Jesus, blesses him. Verse 13. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. There's no lots being drawn. He's given him what he asked for. And Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenesite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Third time we see that. Joshua blessed him. There is a truth in boldness when we stop equivocating and we stop thinking and we just say, give it to me, Lord. And this is a tough point for we intellectuals to get to sometimes. We want to keep thinking. And sometimes you have to just ask for it. And there is a step there that he takes that's great. Our citizenship's in heaven, and we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want it. Caleb's been waiting for this eagerly, and that's the model that we should have how we should look for this. Just like Rahab is singled out in Joshua, as before we get into all the conquest, God's going to save one harlot woman out of a city to show that mercy is first. Before we get to all the inheritance, God's going to honor one man out of all of Israel because of his boldness and his courage. And I think the end of days, the judgment seat, the Bema seat, it's going to look like that. God's going to honor and pull people out and put crowns on them based on who they were in life and what decisions they made. Caleb has no hesitation here. King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32 takes over as king after a horrible father, which is another indication that you are not your parents, right? Evil father. Hezekiah takes over. He grew up hanging out with the priests, and he's like, okay, we're going to get rid of everything that's idol worship in this country. He starts tearing down idols, burning them down, uh, and then Assyria shows up with his massive army. Assyria, we know very well who the Assyrians are after this weekend. Do they arm up? Does Hezekiah get the walls reinforced? Does he fix his food stores? Does he make chariots? Hezekiah does none of this. He doesn't protest. 
He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't get his lawyers, and he doesn't threaten the Assyrians with a court case for trespassing. Doesn't do any of that stuff. What does he do? Listen to this. He set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and he gave them all encouragement, and he said, this is right from Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria. Where is he getting that quote from? He's getting it right from here. He's read this book. Nor before all the multitude that is with them, for there are more with us than there are with them. With him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. This is what Caleb's saying right now to Joshua. And the people were strengthened with the words of Hezekiah. We're not going to arm for battle. We're going to honor our God because Assyria comes with flesh and we come with the armies of God. Like Hezekiah growing up, what gives him courage is the story of Joshua. It is read, just like you and I are reading about Caleb today, when Hezekiah was our age, he was reading about Caleb. He was reading these stories, and he memorized them and put them in his head. And in one of the most terrifying moments of Israel, Israel's history, he gathers the people together, and he, and he quotes Joshua at them and says, don't forget who our God is. Wow, the distractions are out there. Lord, help the distractions to end. Lord, give us peace. Okay, I'll take it. All right? Um, so they get cursed, and God wipes out the Assyrian army in a night. They didn't need to make chariots. They didn't need to file lawsuits. They didn't need to argue. They didn't need to take it to court. They didn't need to fight. They didn't need to arm the walls. They didn't really, all they needed to do was honor God, and God's like, I got gotcha. you. Don't worry about it. Verse 15. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirith Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And then the land had rest from war. <laughs> it's all taken care of. Hebron is the seat of association or joining. Uh, it was named Hebron back with Abraham. And so the Kirith Arba is the name that the Canaanites gave to this place. And when they call it Hebron, the Israelites are changing the name back. You had it once, we're reclaiming the land and we're going to rename it. Uh, one of Abraham's altars was built here. You can see why Caleb claimed Hebron, right? Genesis 13, 18, Sarah is buried in the cave of Machpelah, so Caleb becomes the curator of one of the greatest sites of Israel's history. Uh, that's Genesis 23. Isaac and Jacob both journeyed through here, and Hebron's mentioned in Genesis 35, Genesis 37, uh, and the Canaanites infiltrate and take the city away from those people. So when he comes back, he's reclaiming a very important site for Israel and a very important part of their memory. And he wants it back. Um, Genesis 50, Abraham, all those people, they're all buried here. See, he's getting the tombs of the patriarchs as his inheritance, right? He gets to carry on the history of it. I love Caleb. Caleb wanted this more than just for the view. He wanted it for the symbolic reasons, the spiritual reasons, and because the battles there were the toughest he could find in the land. May we know people like Caleb. May we not only become like Caleb, but we, may we be willing to follow people like Caleb. And we'll, may we honor these people within the church that take on these things with us and for us. Um, don't miss how this book models and mirrors Jesus. Both Joshua and Jesus, both Yeshua, Yeshua hands off their calling from God 
and they both have champions that they entrust it to. And the first champion for Joshua is Caleb. The first champion for Jesus is Peter. And they both hand it off to somebody that's bold as their first handoff. Both give special positioning to those that stand for God despite the social pressure. Caleb does it successfully. Peter fails miserably. And, and Jesus reinstates him and brings him back because he knows who Peter's going to be. Both want God's people to be bold. Both do stand in the gap for God against everybody around them. Both lead by claiming God's promises. I want what you've got for me, God. So when somebody's the real deal, that courage shows up because God gives it to them and God blesses those that wholly follow him. Chapter 14. Chapter 15. Judah's territory in Gilgal is now going to get distributed. Chapter 18, they've moved to Shiloh and now they're going to divide the rest of the land. So this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah. So let's get going. According to their families, the border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin southward was the extreme southern boundary. At their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea from the bay that faces southward and then it went out to the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, passed along to Zin, ascended to the south side of Kadesh Barnea, along, passed along to Herzon, went up to Adar, went up and around Karkah, and from there it passed around Asmon and went around the brook of Egypt. And the border that ended at the sea, this shall be your southern border. Okay, thanks for the detail. Um, notice the verbs. This was their lot. In, in, eight, in chapter 18, 11, that lot is going to come up. And in chapter 19, verse 1, their lot will come out. All of these imply that they're drawing uh, from some sort of collection. Most scholars believe they had two big jars. And they put all the names of the tribes in one jar, except for the two and a half that have already been done. And they put all the names of the land regions in the other jar. And they would draw one, or it came out as this, and they would draw up another one, and it was this. So this is kind of interesting, because it's likely that Judah going first is either because they're first in the inheritance, or they actually drew Judah first. And everybody goes, oh, God's in control of this. Either way, God's giving them the best piece of land. So when they're drawing lots, and it's like, Judah, awesome piece of land, Okay, God seems to be in this because we know he's in the firstborn position right now and then he also gets this choice piece of land. He basically gets the bulk of southern Judah or southern Israel, right? And you say, well, that's a lot of wilderness and stuff. It's also some amazing areas to, to farm at this point in time. Uh, and, and within this area is, is going to be some of the best fishing and all that sort of thing. So there's lots of benefits to this part of the land. Uh, Judah gets pulled first, as God promised in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Interestingly, they're camped at Shiloh when they do these drawings. So prophecy, or maybe they went to Shiloh to do the drawings. Either way, it fits. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. They're going to go first, or they're going to obey or follow this, this gift that they're given. Point being, there's no accidents with God. So when they draw these lots, like God's in control of this too. And I'm trying to break up this long list of directions. The east border was the Salt Sea. We know where that is. As far as the mouth of the Jordan and the border of the northern quarter began at the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. The border went up to Beth Hagla and passed north through Beth Arabah 
and the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben, and the border went up towards Debir, the valley of Achor, and it turned towards, northwards towards Gilgal, and which is before the ascent of Adumum, which is on the south side of the valley. The border continued towards the waters of Enshemesh and ended at Enrogel, and the border went up to the valley of the son of Hinnom, to the southern slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. They just make a note of Jerusalem here. I think that's really curious because at this point they don't know what the place of God's temple will be. But it's a city that, oddly enough, in the tribe of Judah just gets singled out because it's a significant geographical location and it gets highlighted. They're going to comment on Jerusalem at the end too and we'll come back to it. The border went up to the top of the mountain that lies before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of Rephaim northward, and then the border went around from the top of the hill to the fountain of the water at Nephtoah and extended to the cities of Mount Ephron, and the border went around to Baalah, which is Kirath Jerem. They changed the name because we don't want names with Baal in them. Like, we're going to get rid of those names. And the same coordinates here are given for Benjamin's southern border. Here they go east to west. When we get to Benjamin in chapter 18, they're going to go west to east. But they're the exact same coordinates. So we're going to draw these lines twice. That's a lot of detail. Then the border turned westward from Baalah to Mount Seir, passed along the side of Mount Jerem to the north, which is Chesalon, gets highlighted, went down to Beth Shemeth, Shemesh, and passed on to Timnah, and the border went out to the east side of Ekron northward. Okay, this is the Philistine border. It's about 20 miles long. So God's putting this kind of detail into 20 miles worth of territory. Then the border went around Shikron, passed along Mount Baalah, and extended to Jabneel, and the border ended at the sea. The west border was the coastline of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and this boundary of the children of Judah all around according to their families. That's a lot of words to say they got everything from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean and everything in between. Easy enough? And the maps are no longer here. Okay. So the Mediterranean is across from the Dead Sea. They get this whole area as far south as the wilderness is in. So they get all that kind of deserty area to the south too. Um, so same points as last week, but they're worth re-saying. If God goes into this much detail, it's like he's begging us to go figure this out geographically and historically. He's begging us to test his word. Because if we can prove any of these things aren't true or aren't in the right spots, then there's inaccuracies. And he throws all this detail in there. If you don't want to be tested that way, you don't throw in all that detail, which can be then be challenged. But God's like, challenge me. The word of God stands up in every little detail. If God, another second point we made last week, if God puts this much attention to borders and details of land and geography, how much more does he care about you and the details of your life? Just look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? He takes care of the birdies, and he takes care of you, and he takes care of each little line of this map. Um... And then, of course, like, Dave Gusick makes this point. We go through this, and it's like, okay, I just want to get to the next chapter. To these people, this was really important. This is like the reading of the will. So when you go to, like, somebody dies in your family, and you go to the reading of the will, you go with expectation of what your inheritance might be, and you listen carefully to every legal detail. And you're reading through the paperwork, and you're tuned in 
because you're getting your inheritance. And you kind of want to know the scope, size, and, and piece of that. So for all these people, these elders of the tribes of Israel, they're listening with anticipation. And they are tracking this on their own little recording devices. You know, they're paying a, they have their own little hand maps that they're drawing because they really care who's getting what and where it's going to go. So this kind of detail for the listeners of this, would have, they would have been hyper-attentive right now. And for us, we're just like, okay, another place I haven't heard of. But for them, they would have heard this and been like, oh, we get the Mount Baalim. Awesome, that's great, they got mines. So there would have been significance to each of these places that they would have been getting. So back to Caleb. This book ends the native narrative for Judah. This is what things should look like. Verse 13, now Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share amongst the children of Judah, because he's in Judah. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirith Arba, which is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak, uh, a famous person. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Deber. Formerly the name of Deber was Kirith Sefer. Not only does he take Hebron, he also takes another city. Like Caleb does what was allotted to him and then he helps out, right? He just does extra. Here we hear about Caleb in the historical record. This is what every tribe of Israel should have done. Go into your territory, drive out the idol worshipers, get rid of their priests and install Yahweh worship in this town. He does it. None of the other tribes do it. The bold one gets it done Everybody else compromises or finds some other solution that's not what God commanded them to do. This is the great tragedy of the Old Testament. And we're going to see those hints as we go through. Um, they should have, chapter 11, 14, anyone that was in defiance of God, they should not have left one of them breathing so that there was no such thing as Dagon worship in Israel when they got done. It's absolutely eradicated. All the books, records, temples, statues, people that worship it and try to share it with others, they're all pushed out of this space. So this helps us understand what this looks like. The fact that there's still humans there goes back to the beginning of Joshua where it says they destroyed. They didn't destroy all the people. They destroyed the gods and the idols because you can't destroy in earlier chapters, chapter 11, and then now there's suddenly still people there. It doesn't, you can't destroy people twice. So we have that. that's not an issue in the Bible because we have to just understand the word destroy is attacking the spiritual forces that are in that territory. So Caleb encourages others to be look bold. We see that in the next one. Caleb says, <laughs> so Caleb's done two cities on his own and then he goes to his men and I love this encouragement. He who attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I'm going to give Aksa my daughter as a wife. Aksa, you know, obviously he liked to work in the shop. So he named his daughter after one of his power tools. Verse 17, So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the nephew of Caleb, took it and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, as a wife. Now it was so when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing. Since you've given me land in the south, give me springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and he gave her the lower springs. You see how this continuation goes? This is what Jesus wants too. He handed stuff to his disciples, and the job of the disciples was to make new disciples. And there's this continuance that should happen. So Caleb goes and boldly asks for something from Joshua, and Joshua says, I'll give it to you. 
Now Caleb's daughter comes up. I like how she just ignores her husband, by the way. You know, I want to go ask for something. They get there, she hops off the horse and goes, is it a donkey or a horse? She hops off her donkey and she runs up to Caleb to ask for something. Like, she doesn't care what her husband thinks at this point. And she boldly goes forward and asks for an inheritance and says, I want, you gave me the land, I want more than what you gave me. And Caleb says, I like you. Not only will I give you that, I'm going to give you two springs instead of just one. You're right, you're in some dry territory. You could get these springs. And of course, it's a daughter asking her dad for stuff. Like, come on. Caleb's helpless here, right? Daddy, please? Yeah, okay. I think what we can draw from this is like father, like daughter. And it doesn't matter who you are. I love that in ancient literature, we have a male and a female mixed right in together. The point here is the boldness of the request. When it comes to God's inheritance, we should want it, right? If you don't want to like hang out, fellowship with believers, eat meals, worship God, and read the word of God, why would you want to go to heaven? Like You should want those things. I can just do that for eternity? Yeah, that's the good part. So oxa doesn't mean a tool in the shed. I lied, I'm sorry. It, it's a nickname. It means anklet. It's kind of like tiny one, like my little one. So it's kind of an affectionate name that she has there. Um, Oxa is actually a name that gets used in the genealogy, 1 Chronicles 22:49. So she is kind of, that is her name. That nickname kind of becomes her name. Uh, and that's how everyone knows her. Um, she dismounts here, which implies, the dis word dismounting in the Hebrew implies a, she repositioned herself respectfully. So she didn't just run up and demand. She respectfully approached Caleb and asked for something. So I want to make sure we get the tone there. She's asking for a gift. Dad, please give this to me. Uh, the land in the south is a desert area. The springs are kind of essential if you're going to live down there. Um, so Caleb not only is bold and brave, he inspires boldness and braveness in Othniel and in his daughter. And that is the kind of guy Caleb is. He's creating generations of bold, fearless people. This is how it should look for the rest of the tribes. So at the beginning, God gives us the model of what it should look like. Um, it, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. In the New Testament, he tells us what we should do. I want to know what God's telling me to do. Okay, I'm just going to read it to you because he wrote it. He gave it to you in writing. How much more do you want? You're supposed to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's what God's told you to do. So why go any further? That's your job. Go do it. Cities of Judah, at least one of, uh, at least these are the cities uh, that accept Israel's monastic faith. There could be cities that were destroyed, but these are the cities that now just came part of Israel, just like Gibeon did, right? So these are cities where they're going to submit to Israel's rule. They're going to take the Lord as their king, and they become part of Israel, and the list is long. Get ready, gear up, hold on tight. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. The cities at the limits of the tribe of the children of Judah, toward the border of Edom, in the south, were Kabil, Eder, Jagger, Kena, Dimona, Adama, Kadesh, Hazor, Hithan, Ziph, Telem, Baaloth, Baaloth, Hazor, big city in Hazor, remember we had a king there, Hadatath, Kirion, Hezron, which is Hazor, Amam, Shema, Moladah, People are going to think we're speaking in tongues if they overhear this part. Hazar, Gada, Heshman, Beth Palat, Hazar, Shual, Beersheba, Bizjuath, Baalah, Izam, Izam, Adam, Ebum, Ethelad, Chesel, Horma, Ziklag, Metama, Sassamoth, verse 32. 
Lebaoth, Shillam, Ain, Rimmon, all these cities are 29 with their villages. And in the lowlands, we have Eshtoho, Zora, Ashna. I thought, can I just skim through this, honey? And she's like, yes, just skim through it. And I'm like, oh, but I kind of wanted to do every word. And Zach would be disappointed if I didn't do every stinking word. So at this point, this is discipline and faithfulness right here. So this is an exercise, and we're just going to do it your way, God. At, and he wanted to embarrass all people that teach the Bible by giving them words they can't pronounce. So God, this is an exercise in humility, too. Uh, verse 33, in the lowland, there's Eshtael, Zora, Ashna, Zanoa, En Ganim, Tapua, Enim, Jarmuth, Adalam, Sakoth, uh, Sako, Ezekah, Sharaim, Adatham, Gedera, Genaritham, I don't know. 14 cities with their villages. Zenan, Hadashash, Migdal, Gad, Delin, Mizpah, Jothiel, Lachish. That becomes a big city. We're going to see that later. Boskath, Eglon, Kaban, Lamas, Kithlish, Kedaron, Beth Dagon. You know, when they're listing this many cities, we got cities with like 10 people in them. Right? I mean, honestly, this is the ancient world. The, God's name in every single one because every single one matters to him. Beth Dagon, Nama, Makadah. Did I miss anything there? I think I'm still on. 16 villages with their cities. Libna, Ether, Ashan, Jifna, Ashna, Nebzab, Keliah, Asgib, Merishah. There's nine cities with their villages. Verse 45, Ekron with its towns and villages. From Ekron to the sea. So there's a whole grouping of nomadic people. All that lay near Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod with its towns and villages, Gaza with its towns and villages, as far as the brook of Egypt with the great sea and its coastline. Verse 45 and verse 47 are important. Note that they don't list all the towns and villages. Why? Because Judah fails to conquer these areas. This is Gaza, the Gaza Strip. And so these, in verse 45 and 47, those are part of their inheritance, but they never claim them. And for the rest of the Old Testament, the Philistines are going to be an issue. So I think it's almost prophetic. Those aren't detailed here because they didn't need to be detailed. They never got claimed. They're still, to this day, not claimed by Israel. So these are areas that continue to be an issue. Uh, they're contested, and they will be contested. Uh, those, so there's three capitals in 45, 47. Uh, 48, and in the mountain country, Shamir, Jet. Notice that they're getting the lowlands, the mountain country, the sea country. Judah is a prime piece of land. They get all the different geography types, which means they get all the different economies of those geography types. They get mines, they get agriculture, they get fishing, they get it all. Mountain country. Shamir, Jatir, Soko, Dana, Kirith, Shana. We're just going to give that one Shan name. Which is Debir, Anam, Estamoth, Anam, Goshen, Holon, Gilo, 11 cities with their villages. Arab, Duma, Eshin, Janam, Beth Tapua, uh, Afkela, Humta, Kirith Arba, which is Hebron. That's the one Caleb got. And Zior, nine cities with their villages. Maon, Carmel. Oh, that sounds tasty. Ziph, Judah, Jezreel, Jokdim, Zanoa, Cain, Gibeah, Timnah, 10 cities with their villages. Halhul, Bethzur, Gedor, Mara, Beth Arnoth, and Elkatan. You know, this is endurance for you guys, too. You just got done with a Bible retreat, a lot of you, and then you got to do this and stay awake through it. Kick it. And those that weren't at the retreat, respect for people that could go hard for three days and get through this. Where am I? Verse 58. 
uh, Halhul, Beth Zur, Gador, Ma'arath, Beth Anath, El Kadan. You made me reread that. Six cities with their villages. Kirith Baal, which is now Kirith Jerem, because Baal, we're going to get rid of that. And Rabbah, two cities with their villages. Um, uh, Baal, by the way, the Kirith Baal, and turning into Kirith Jerem, change, changes in the Hebrew from the city of Baal, I love this, to the city of forests. Like, this is natural territory. So really, all these towns are changing their gods, and those name changes give us indication that that's what's going on here. So these are all the cities that don't get burned to the ground. And then people say, well, Joshua just represents how the Israelites were just bloodthirsty killers, and they went all over and wiped people out. No, they didn't. Read. Read the book. It didn't do that. There are select cities that get burnt because of their idol worship. But God's taking all of these cities, and they're just becoming part of Israel. And they're getting new leadership in each of the cities because there aren't enough Israelites to just move in and populate all the houses. The Israelites are coming in as leaders of each of these cities. They're taking governing authority over. And they're going to continually have issues with idol worship popping up because all the people that know how to do idol worship aren't dealt with. Okay? So, verse 61, in the wilderness. Beth Arabah, Midin, Sekaka, uh, Nibshan, the city of salt, and Gedi. And Gedi's beautiful, by the way. It's like a resort town. Tons of springs and natural waters you want to jump into. Six cities with their villages. So, oof, grand total for Judah, if you have your calculator, is 106 cities plus three Philistine cities. And one more city gets listed at the end in verse 63. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. They never drive them out. Each of these tribes at the very end, they're going to say, and they never drove them out. They never got rid of them. But Jerusalem gets singled out here as one of those cities. This is interesting. Um, one city that doesn't get taken out of 106, and they do have authority over the Philistine areas, but they don't drive them out. Uh, gets this last reference. This is kind of a big deal. So Jerusalem had a king, as we studied in Joshua, King Adonai Zedek, which was the false lord of righteousness. That's what his lord mean, his word name means. He came from this city, the city of peace, right? And Caleb does his part, but the rest of Judah as a tribe, they leave Philistia and they leave the Jebusites. And they can't drive them out because it's tricky to conquer. Jerusalem, we should know something about this city. It's a city on a hill. It's surrounded by other hills. If you want to conquer Jerusalem, you don't just have to do the walls of Jericho. You have to do the hillside that is in front of the walls. So you could have a 10-foot wall, but it's still a 50-foot climb to get up there and do any battle. This is a city that humans on feet aren't going to be able to conquer. Nor can chariots have any, they're not going to do any good with the hillside. So when we go to Israel, you're going to be able to see this for yourself. On three sides of Israel is the Valley of Hinnom and the Valley of Kidron. So those two valleys kind of make three sides of the old city of Jerusalem. It is a, a very defensible town. Like 10 people could defend this town. You just sit up there with an arrow or just some rocks or some slushies and you just dump them on people. It's not a hard town to defend. So, um, But this theme of they did not conquer, they did not drive them out, we're going to see this theme for the rest of Judah. Uh, it is prophetic because that is setting up the next book, which is Judges, where they deal with all the problems that are a result of this. Um, just because Joshua won the war doesn't mean that the people do their job. Parallel that to the New Testament. Just because Jesus won the war doesn't mean that we'll necessarily do our jobs. 
we have a choice to make. And God allows that free will again and again and again through the Bible. There's times where you read the Bible and you're like, Lord, could you just take away free will for a little bit to solve some problems for us? And God's like, no, I want to do this with you. I want participation. I want to work together. So God gives us battles to fight. He gives us promises that we're supposed to claim. And he gives us territory to do it for and, and to go do those sorts of things. We're supposed to put up God's banner and let it fly and be proud of it. So a literal thing here is that they don't finish the work, book of Joshua. The prophetic thing here is the special note of one city in this entire region being Jerusalem. And I'm going to end on this because I think it's really cool. This ends up being the city, as we all know, where the temple gets built. And we've seen a ton of references in the Bible so far of God setting up a place where his name will reside. We first heard of it back in Exodus 15, 17 there was a place where God would pick. And until that time, you're going to build the tabernacle and move the tabernacle with you. Until I pick a place for my name to reside. In Deuteronomy 12, 11, uh, it, it adds that element. First, it's the place in Exodus. And in Deuteronomy 12, it's the place where his name will reside. And then in Deuteronomy 12, 14, it's the place where sacrifices will be given. And then in Deuteronomy 31, 11, it's the place where the law will be read periodically. That's a pretty cool place. We get more and more description of the place, like God's giving us a riddle, and as we don't figure it out, gives us clues to the riddle. Well, and we and parents do this with their kids. It's hiding somewhere in the house. You're getting warmer. You're getting colder. You know this game, right? Or maybe, okay, okay, okay. It's hiding somewhere on the main level of the house. And God keeps narrowing in with these clues through the Bible so when they see the city, they can look back at the word of God and go, oh, like, you totally told us where it was. You hid these little hints in the scriptures that we should have picked up on. Like all of Judah gets conquered, but this one city gets singled out. It's like a, a hint that's here. So this place is going to be, I just want to talk about Jerusalem. It's going to be a place of rejoicing. That's the best part about Jerusalem. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who's within your gates, the stranger, the fatherless, the widows who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, Deuteronomy 16:11. This is a really good place. We want this place to happen. It's the hope of Israel now that they've won the promised land. So first he said, I'm going to give you an inheritance in the promised land. Now that they're getting it, the next promise in line is, I'm going to make a place where all these awesome rejoicing things happen. Like, I'm going to make Jerusalem. So I love that after it comes to pass, this is what's called a progressive revelation. The Bible is filled with progressive revelations. Big general clues of God's promises that get more and more specific as the time gets closer to the revelation that God will give. So Jesus works the same way. You get hints of Jesus in Genesis 1. But it's really vague in general. There will be... You know, the daughter of Eve will, the son of Eve will step on the head of Satan. It's very vague. But as you get through the Old Testament, you get to Isaiah and Malachi. It gets very specific, describing this Messiah that will come. Jerusalem's the same way. It's progressively revealed to the Israelites what this city will be. And that's, I think for us as Bible scholars, we need to know it. As total geeks, which I know, Steph, you don't think this is cool, but some of us do. This is where the word Easter egg comes from. So when you play a computer game and there are Easter eggs hidden in the game, the idea of an Easter egg is that it's something that's hidden in the experience that you see or notice, but you don't know what it means until the end. 
So on Easter day, you could go back to the scriptures and go, oh my goodness, everything was laid out in the Old Testament. God totally told us all of this, but there's no way we could have seen it until after the event was over. So you can go back and find Easter eggs in the Bible. This is that idea of finding things that are hidden, that are super colorful. Like once you know what you're looking for, they're obvious as heck. But God hides those things out and does that. So there's Easter eggs and they're all through the Bible. And these verses in Joshua, and I'm going to stop here tonight, I think are fun because they're Easter eggs. God just lays this little Jerusalem. He gives them the name of the place, but they have no idea that that's what's going on here. He tells them it's Jerusalem. Like he singles the city out, makes it special. So why does God do this? Why does God write a holy scripture that puts Easter eggs in it? First of all, he knows that some of us love puzzles. And that, and I honestly think like as a parent, there's nothing better than your child just being delighted and going, oh, it's why we like puzzle rooms and we like inventing things that other people enjoy. It's part of the nature of God to design something that other people take great joy in. Because you can go back through the word and go, mind blown. I'd never heard that passage compared to Jesus before, but God laces it through his word. It's also an indication of his sovereignty and holiness over the writing of the word of God. Because there's no way that Joshua knew the significance of singling out Jerusalem in this chapter. He just did it because it's historical. And he wanted to put a note in there about the Jebusites. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we might do all the words of the law. Why does God put Easter eggs in the Bible? So that we can know he's God and we can share these Easter eggs with our kids. Because this is amazing. And you can say, you can share that with your kids and go, look at how cool God's word is. And they can get faith and strength from that. Boldness and courage as they move forward. So God puts them in there so that we know that he wrote the book, not Joshua. Joshua is just participating. He wrote the book, not Moses. Moses is just participating. And he's going to write a book with a number of authors. How many authors? 40. 40 authors? 66 books and 40 authors. Thank you. I'm imp- if that's the right number, I'm super impressed that you knew that off your top of your head. Part of why we get these histories and these lengthy texts, these genealogies in the Bible, which are, are kind of hard to just read through for the sake of disciplining yourself to read through them, but part of why we get them is that they hide Easter eggs. And they are like when you see a maze and it just looks like chaos, but as you work through it, you see the patterns. That's part of what God does with these things. In genealogies, he can have messages weaved into them. And in these things, he can have highlighted Easter eggs like Jerusalem to where when Jerusalem becomes the place, the priests read this and go, he told us right here the city was. Oh, thank you, God. We know that you're God. And we want to share this with our kids. Look at where this was hidden. So the Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness, He's revealed in the sight of the nations, Psalm 98 too. God delights in revealing things. He hides things. That's the privilege and honor of God. It is the privilege and honor of kings to find those things and to have them revealed. And I don't know the reference to that. I got to memorize my verses with my verses. At some point, I got to figure that out. So that's where Easter eggs come from. And we got a nice Easter egg in a very hard to read chapter 15. We have more of these chapters, so if you show up next week, I respect your commitment to get through all of this. But we got some more tribes to get through. 
we might even tackle four chapters next week. So that's encouragement to come because you're going to miss a big chunk if you don't. But we're going to move through these chapters. You're doubting me? No. Have you looked ahead? You won't doubt me when you look ahead. You'll be like, yeah, he's going to get through four chapters. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for the Easter eggs. We know that you're an almighty God. We know that you supernaturally help these writers put things in here that were part of your progressive revelation. Lord, we know you are a mighty God. But Lord, I want to pray tonight about Caleb and the kind of man he was. Lord, I can't wait to meet him. Lord, we have the same Holy Spirit in us that you put in these champions that we read about in the Bible. We have the same fears and trepidations that Joshua had. And you tell us the same thing you told Joshua. Be strong, be courageous. Lord, give us that strength and courage. We've tried. It's not always there every day, but help us to be bold and courageous. Help us to share the joy of our salvation with other people. Uh, and, And Lord, help us to do it in such a way that we are an invitation. We're a walking invitation into the boldness. Help us to come before you having wholly followed you and not being ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ or his banner. Help us to proclaim it everywhere we go to the point of annoying people. Uh, It's so that when we get to our inheritance, Lord, we can be bold like Caleb and we can step forward and go, I was there when you all were ready to stone me and and, and I'm here to claim my inheritance because I follow the Lord God Almighty. So Lord, help us to do that. Uh, Help us to walk out this week and to be joyfully sharing our salvation with other people, Uh, to be um, fishers of men and women, and to draw them into your presence, draw them into your salvation. Lord, bless each person in this room. We're all uh, going through things in our life, some hardships. uh, Some people are going through seasons of joy and some of pain. And Lord, help us to minister to one another and edify one another in the kingdom. So as we take some time to pray with one another and pray for each other, Lord, help those of us that are strong in our faith and bold to support and encourage those that are going through tough times and help the body to just serve and edify itself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.